Let's reopen our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And listen to the preacher, the wise man, the son of David, king over Israel in Jerusalem, teach us about wisdom. What does it take in the way of dollars to hire a counselor to teach you wisdom for career success, financial success? They're hundreds of dollars an hour. Ecclesiastes 8.2 starts out with the words, I counsel thee. Individual personal instruction from the wisest man God raised up to tell us how to be wise. To tell us how to fit into verse 1. Verse 1, and I hope you'll remember it. Who is as the wise man? Who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. The excellency of wisdom is in verse 1. The incomparable wise man is in verse 1. He is excellent. Daniel had an excellent spirit. David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. Joseph was of an excellent spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ was the best of them all. They were all wise men. And we want to be wise men. Verses 2 down through verse 11 are political theory, political science taught in the Bible. Now, there have been other parts of Ecclesiastes, and there will yet be other parts that teach us about government. But here are a few rules of how to be a wise man relative to government. Verse 2, some of these things I've said, let's go quickly. I counsel thee, this is Solomon's wisdom and advice to us, to keep the king's commandment. It's not just one commandment. This is a collective noun for all his commandments. Keep the laws of the land. Keep the rules of your government. Keep the king's commandments. All embodied under the collective noun, the king's commandment. That commandment's going to be mentioned again in verse 5, where it says, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. Well, if you just keep one of the laws of a nation, that's not going to protect you from the sword of that nation. It's all of them. And I, I hope I've been clear enough on that. I, I do not want you to trust me. I want you to be able to see it yourself in the words that that is what we call a collective noun. Remember the words, keep the law or obey the law. But we don't mean one law. We mean all laws embodied in that expression. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment. And that is the wisdom that that second verse teaches us is that we want to obey the laws of our nation. Those laws may irritate you. You may not believe in some of them. You do them anyway. You know, to me, it is a man's right. That this is natural thinking. And I've been through this before with you. I know I repeat myself, but I hope the lesson sinks in. It seems to me, in my flesh, and whatever wisdom it has, that if I want to stick my face through my windshield in an automobile accident, I should be able to have that right. So they do not have the right to tell me that I have to wear a shoulder harness or a seatbelt when I'm in a moving vehicle. Because whether I wear that seatbelt or not is not going to keep anyone else safe on the road. All it is is going to keep me safe. And what if I don't care whether I put my face in my windshield? And see, we can reason that way about almost any commandment they have. We can reason that it's not constitutional, that it's not wise, that it's going to cost too much money, that it could cost our children their lives if they go over and die in Iraq. We could reason that way about a lot of different commandments, but do you know what the Bible tells us to do? Keep the king's commandments, even the ones you don't like, 
and don't think are even that wise and that you think you have personal rights to override them. Keep them. You can honor and glorify the Lord that way. And there's two reasons we keep His commandments. Holding your hand at Ecclesiastes 8, look at Romans chapter 13 that was read to us this morning by our brother Stephen. Romans chapter 13 about civil government. I want you to remember the two, the two reasons we obey government. And the Bible gives us both reasons. Verse 5. Wherefore ye must needs be subject. You must needs be subject. There are reasons to obey the government. And there are two of those reasons. Not only for wrath. Do you know what that little phrase there means? The government can get mad at you and give you a traffic ticket. Or the government can get mad at you and give you a little bit of poison in a cell. And take away your life with capital punishment. That's the, that's the sword that is mentioned in verse 4. He beareth not the sword in vain. That means if you commit a capital crime, he is able to take away your life. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, verse 5, not only for wrath, but also, the word also means there's two things here, for conscience' sake. And the conscience is taught to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's, it's here as well, because it says every power is ordained by God. And if you disobey the power, then you're disobeying God. So it's out of conscience toward God that we obey the government that He put over us. That government didn't get there by men. That government got there by the blessing of God. And it is the best government on earth. Amen. Where do you want to move to will help you get there. Especially some of those Hollywood actors and actresses that want to complain about our government. I'll help them. I'll pack. Amen. Boy, if we got rid of all of them, we'd be a better nation. There's the two reasons. Remember, in 1 Peter 2 it says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man, including shoulder harnesses. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is the conscience. Out of conscience toward God, we endure grief from our government, and we endure grief from forward masters. That's all in 1 Peter 2. And the example that is given to us there is the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured grief, suffering wrongfully the most of any man that's ever walked this earth. When he was falsely tried, accused, and crucified, being the most innocent and righteous man that's ever walked this earth. And he gave us his example that we do not revile, we do not threaten, we do not speak evil of dignities, we submit and obey. This is real Christianity. There are historians that have written, and we should believe this by reading some of these things about the Roman government. When a people are told to submit to an occupying army the way that the Bible teaches, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, if a man comes along and asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, what did Jesus say to do? Tell him that you're a free citizen still living under the Constitution? Or carry it for two miles? That's a totally different attitude. There are historians that have written that the Christians were the most wonderful citizens of the Roman Empire in the whole Roman Empire. And they should be. We should be the best American citizens. We should obey our government. We should speak respectfully about our government because the Bible tells us to. We should pray for our government. We should pay our taxes. And pay them relatively cheerfully. They're not nearly what they could be. And let me say this. They're not nearly what they should be. Given the expenses that are paid out. 
Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment. Now, I I wanted to show you those two reasons we obey government, because both reasons are in this passage. There's two reasons, wrath and conscience. The wrath is the government getting mad and putting me in jail. The conscience is God set up that government, so by obeying the government, I'm obeying God and his representative on earth, little gods, according to Psalm 82, verses 1 and 6. Verse 2, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. See, God's involved because when you submit to a king, you take an oath. And whether it was Israel or America, we both took an oath in the name of God that we were going to obey our government. Israel did it, we do it. And God has also basically sworn us to an oath in his word by telling us that we're, so, we're supposed to obey because those men are set up by him. In the Bible, there were two stages of a man becoming king. And it's very, this is, this is wisdom. First of all, there was Samuel pouring some oil on David's head and anointing him as king over Israel. Did anyone treat him like king after that? Nope. Not really. Did King Saul treat him like king? Nope. Especially no. Tried to kill him. Many years later, when Saul was dead and Abner brought the ten tribes, they all gathered together and they made David king. And do you know how they made David king? We promise in the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, that we will submit to you. And we make you our king, which means you may now use military force to enforce our submission. You know, a marriage doesn't occur until a woman says, I will submit to that man as my husband. And she gives him the authority to enforce that submission and to keep the marriage going by being the leader and the ruler of the home. And that's what a nation does with a king. Pouring the oil on didn't make him a king. That was God's designation. This is the man that you are to make the oath and put him up as your king and agree to obey him. That's the oath of God in verse 2. The agreement that citizens make that in the name of God they will follow their king or president. As we do. Verse 3. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Don't be impudent or disrespectful by walking away from him or turning away or quickly leaving when he's telling you to do something. Be respectful and show it by your deference to him in public deportment when you're with an official of the government. Whether it's a street officer, police officer, a mayor, governor, or the president himself. Stand not in an evil thing. If you're doing something evil that's in disagreement with the king's commandment, then stop doing it. Don't stand there and keep doing it. Get out of that situation. Confess your sins to God, repent of it, make restitution, and stop breaking the law. For he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. And that's certainly true of kings who didn't have paparazzi, press meetings, the Supreme Court and Congress sitting in judgment on them all the time. They did whatever they wanted to do. It's a much more efficient form of government if you haven't been able to tell. Now, while I'm on that point, let me make this. We are thankful for the form of government that we have. Not because it is a superior form of government, because it is not a superior form of government. It is an inferior form of government. It is far inferior and very inefficient. But we are thankful for it because it provides sufficient checks and balances to help give us the liberty that we have had in our nation to worship God according to the word of God and according to our consciences. 
The words of the Declaration of Independence are anarchic. If your children, and I've done this before, and I'll write it for you this week and mail it to your homes if you want to see it. If you want your children to write you the Declaration of Independence the way that our first fathers wrote the, the King of England, you would not like it one bit. We the children. Because we don't believe that you've given us the kind of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that we would really like to have, have decided that we want to get a new set of parents. So we are, as of this day, saying that you are no longer our parents, and we're going to go down the street until we find another set of parents that will let us do whatever we want to do. That is what the Declaration of Independence says. That is anarchic. They were under a king. Because they had come across an ocean of a couple thousand miles, did not give them the liberty to do what they did. The fact that God was able to use that is a different thing, and we are thankful for it. We are thankful for a lot of things that weren't done right when they were done, but they end up because God overrules the folly of man for the protection of his people. Amen. One man living in one house that's a wise man and making decisions is a whole lot better than a bunch of people arguing that we have to pay for them and all their aids. It's just a whole... I don't even want to get into it. It's the Word of God. When God set up a government, He set up one man. He didn't set up checks and balances because do you know who the check and balance was? Yeah. God and His Word. Right. You say, well, men can, men can disobey God and His Word. Yes, and men can claim the army and overthrow Congress. So what have you come up with? We're thankful how God has arranged the affairs of our government so that we are in a blessed nation. But it's not because it's a superior form of government. The form itself does not make it better. It's that God has influenced it in His mercy toward this country so that we have so many blessings. Amen. That, the reason I went to all that at length is because the last clause of verse 3 is, He doeth whatsoever pleaseth Him. The chief executive of a nation should be able to do whatever he wants without some woman behind a microphone questioning him. I wish for one day our president could be King Nebuchadnezzar and have some woman question him about what he's doing. I would shovel the stuff that would come off the semi-tractor trailer in the place of the house where they once lived. Because do you know what Nebuchadnezzar would do to anybody that questioned him? He would chop them in pieces and turn their house into a dunghill. That's a decent public example. Amen. Don't you think? Yes. I love that. Do you know what God said of Nebuchadnezzar? He's my servant. He's the head of glory because he's the most glorious king. The head of gold of that image because he's the most glorious king the earth's ever seen. He's the king of kings. God called him that. Right. He calls him my servant 50 times. He told Israel, you submit yourself to Nebuchadnezzar for, fit for 70 years and I'll bring you back to this place. But don't you dare rebel against him. And some of those kings of Judah tried to rebel against him and God wiped them out. One of those kings had his sons killed in front of his eyes, then his eyes plucked out. So the last vision that he ever had of anything on earth were his sons being killed in front of him because he went against the king Nebuchadnezzar. The king Nebuchadnezzar could set up an image and say, I'm going to have my praise band play, 
And I expect, expect all of you presidents, governors, sheriffs, counselors, and wise men to get down and grovel on your face because I'm going to start a new religion for 30 days. And if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. We can hardly imagine that kind of authority. We can hardly talk about it. As it comes out of my mouth, I know you don't understand it, and I hardly comprehend it. That's the authority of a king with... He doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Yep, that sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. He doeth what's... I'm going to start a new religion. You don't like it? Fiery furnace. How's that for separation of church and state? Verse 4. Where the word of a king is. That's a monarch. A solitary ruler. A dictator. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. There is obeying him for wrath's sake. There's two reasons we obey government. Number one, out of honor to the oath of God, because we've agreed to serve our government, which is called for conscience sake in 1 Peter 2. The second reason we obey government is for wrath's sake, which is described in Romans 13:5. because if the government gets mad at us and they have some authority, they're going to hurt us. They're going to charge us penalties. They're going to put us in prison. They could take our lives where capital punishment is still enforced. Much more could be said about these verses. We've been over some of these things before. I want to remind you that the hardest language in the New Testament, thereabouts, is against men who speak evil of government. Do not tell or listen to jokes about our president. That is being disrespectful. The devil, I mean, the, Michael and, the, and Gabriel do not stand around making jokes about the devil. Right. Holding your hand at Ecclesiastes 8, look at Second Peter chapter 2. We are too frivolous in America about authority. We make too many jokes. And depending on who we get next, we could make more jokes. But we can't do it if we're going to be Christians. If we're going to be wise men. We want to be like Job. Did you, did you hear those words I read from Job 29? We want to be dignified and serious when we speak so that men listen. When we're done speaking, they're still quiet as they meditate upon the wisdom we gave them. We don't want to be frivolous and foolish, disrespectful and arrogant in talking against government. If you talk against our government in Washington or our government in Columbia or our government on South Main Street in this city, how can you presume to think that your wife shouldn't talk about you behind your back. She should. If you cheat on your taxes, she should cheat on your marriage bed. Right. How can you expect your children to reverence you and to treat you right if you don't reverence the government that God put over you? Has somebody said what's good for the goose is also good for the gander? I think somebody said that. It's not an expression I use. Did it come from down here? Most of the good ones came from down here. You know, how can, you, how can we charge our children with something we're not going to do to the authority in our lives? Are you all with me on that? Yeah. Some men wonder why their children aren't obedient. Why they're not disrespectful. How do they talk about government? If that child were to talk about you that way, you, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't stand it. And maybe because they don't have enough authority, they just leave. You better be respectful of authority, or how can you expect your wife or children to be respectful of yours? 
Second, I wasn't, this wasn't always true of me, and it's, it's still hard. I don't like some of the decisions our government makes, but I want to submit to it because I know that Jesus Christ reigns over all. And, and compared to all the other nations on earth, we got the best one there is. And short of Israel, for a few months, we've got the best nation the world has ever seen. Israel was a mess most of the time. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10. The, the Bible here, Peter here is describing wicked men. And he says, but chiefly, I really want to point out these kind of wicked men. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, sodomites, and despise government. Presumptuous are they. It is presumptuous to despise government and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, and they should be afraid. Whereas, and he gives an example, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might than any man, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. The angels of heaven do not bring railing accusation against President Bush before the God of heaven. It is the other passage in Jude that tells us Michael does not rebuke the devil, but says the Lord rebuke thee. Now can you appreciate 1 Corinthians 11 just a little bit where it says that a woman speaking in the New Testament church ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because angels understand authority. That's why they're in all ranks of thrones and dominions, might and power, principalities. Those are different ruling spheres of the angelic host. And this is what they do not bring railing accusation against human rulers. But these, back to the wicked men, but these presumptuous self-willed men who despise government and speak evil of dignities, look at verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. I said this is some of the harshest language in the New Testament. For anybody that speaks against the government, and do you know what kind of dignities we're talking about here? We're talking about boy-loving Caesars. We're talking about men that killed Christians. But they are to be obeyed for wrath and for conscience sake. They're natural brute beasts. It's like a rabid dog. Take them out and shoot them. That is what God thinks of people who speak against government because they don't know what they're talking about. None of us can imagine the weight of the decisions that President Bush must make. How does he go to sleep at night and think about the weight of the information that is poured into him and upon him and around him every day of his life and he has to make weighty decisions? If you despise him or his decision-making, may your wife and children despise yours. Because you make decisions for them sometimes that they can't figure out if, it, if they took a week trying to figure it out. And therefore, we should do that for our government. Because this is what the Bible says. I have not always been around men that believe this. But this is the truth. Back to Ecclesiastes. Don't tell jokes about our president. Don't joke. Don't disrespect. Pay and pray and obey. 
Pay, pray, and obey is the way to treat your government. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. There we're back to wisdom now. We were told that a wise man, I counsel thee, I want to give you wisdom, a wise man is going to submit to government. He's going to submit to government because he's got an oath before God to obey it, because they're the representatives of God. And the other reason he's going to obey because a king does whatever he wants to do, you're not going to stop him, and if he gets upset, he's going to cut your head off. That, that all makes sense to me. This isn't too deep, is it? We're able to understand this. So let's practice it. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. A wise man understands that political winds change. And he changes along with them. He doesn't try to make change. He understands submission is what God wants him to do. Turn to Proverbs chapter 24 and hear Solomon teach in another book that he wrote on this very same subject. Those men of Issachar understood that the government they had had under King Saul for 40 years and then two years under his son Ishbosheth was not really the government they should obey. There were others that didn't think that way. Ishbosheth didn't think that way. Ishbosheth was not of a mind to go submit himself to King David. Abner was. If you remember what I taught you this morning. They were the ones that understood the times. Do you know what the times are in First Chronicles chapter 12? It's political change. And know what Israel ought to do to submit to a new government. They knew that. It's a good lesson for us. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21. My son. My son. Proverbs 24, 21. Fear thou the Lord and the king. They go together. That's why one is God with a big G and the other is a little God with a little G. Because the one ordained the other and the one comes first. Notice the order. There's so much wisdom here. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king. He is my servant on earth to execute civil laws. And meddle not with them that are given to change. What kind of change? Changing clothes, changing jobs, or trying to change government? My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change. There are anarchists, and they can call themselves patriots. They can call themselves any name they wish. They can call themselves revolutionaries. They are men given to change, wanting to change government. And we as Christians are not even to meddle with them, let alone be them. We shouldn't read them. We shouldn't share their filth. Verse 22, for their calamity shall rise suddenly. God will suddenly destroy them either by that king and the government or he will do it himself. And who knoweth the ruin of them both? Who is the both? Those that are given to change, revolutionaries, patri so-called patriots and anarchists, and those that meddle with them. Both of them are going to be in trouble. I warn you, there is no advantage, nor does it profit your soul at all, to read the filth that men write against our government that they cannot prove. And even if they can prove it, it's not worth reading it. What are you going to do about it if you find the grossest, greatest conspiracy possible? What if President Bush bows down to Lucifer every night and begs his help to take his soul? 
What are you going to do about it? What if you were to know that? What's the profit? Rather, we should be thanking God and encouraging each other to be thankful for the wonderful country we live in that gives us so many advantages and privileges above all peoples of the earth that have ever lived. We have more and do more with greater freedom than anyone else. Who is as the wise man? I wish he could come in here right now and that we could tell him that we're thankful for him, that God put him over our nation and that we know he deals with great things that are above and beyond us and we're not even smart enough to figure them out. Just like we want our wives and children to do with us. A wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. This is not primarily to know when to disobey government or would fly in the face of what's said here in verses 2 through 5. The time and judgment is primarily changing governments by God's change. That they know how to submit to a new one. It's like Jesus Christ knowing that there was a de facto government over Israel and knowing that they should pay tribute to Caesar instead of holding to their constitution of the Old Testament. But, Moses was born to two parents. And there was a law in that land by that government that said, kill the baby boys. What did Moses' two parents do? They looked at that little baby. Did he have a shining face? Yes, he did. Did they know he was a goodly child? Yes, they did. Did they kill him? No. They disobeyed the king's commandment. Did they have a couple of allies? Shua and Pua, do you know about them? The two Hebrew midwives, did they obey the king's commandment? No, because they feared God. And the fear of God means you don't kill like that. You say, well, that takes judgment. Oh, and I get so many questions. But what would you do if this, listen, learn wisdom and you can figure it out. They knew that they shouldn't kill the little boy. And do you know where they get listed in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. What did God do for those two Hebrew midwives that wouldn't kill the babies? He built them houses. They prospered in Egypt for lying to the Pharaoh and telling him, listen, we can't get it. Every time we get to those women, just have, they have their babies so fast, we can't get there in time to kill them while they're on the way out. They're already born. They're holding them and nursing them. And you know we... Okay. Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's keep going, though. Be, before Moses, about 200 years before Moses, a man named Joseph was there. And he was of a wise and understanding spirit. When the people ran out of money to buy food in about the third or fourth year of the famine... He sold them all as slaves to Pharaoh. But he ordered that there would be tax exemption and payment exemption for the priests of the Egyptian pagan religion. Was he a wise and understanding man? Yes. He was working for a government that God had put him in by God's providence in his life. 
and that was his government, and that was his country, and that was their religion. And so he was going to protect it because he was going to be wise and prudent in discharging the affairs of Egypt in the optimal, wise way for the prophet of Pharaoh and the nation. Did God bless Joseph? Amen. Did he go ahead and take his wife on a honeymoon when he got married to the daughter of the priest of Egypt's religion? Right. Yes, he did. He had two children by her. Do you know their names? Ephraim and Manasseh, two of Israel's tribes, came out of the ovaries of the daughter of the priest of Egypt. That's a wise man. Amen. He understood. There was Paul facing, if I go back to Jerusalem, I am not dealing with my bloodthirsty countrymen. I'll take Caesar. At least he's got a little bit of law in Rome. And there was some law in the Roman system. I, I appeal to Caesar. The discretion of a man. Who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? These men did. This is what we want to learn by studying the Bible. And that's what the last part of verse 5 means when it says, A wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. All these different aspects of government. God will lead us if we learn His Word and we humble ourselves before that government, and we speak respectfully about them, God will lead us as to what we ought to do. And we pray for our government. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, God told Jeremiah and the people that were captive in Babylon, pray for the peace of Babylon, because in her peace you'll have peace. Go ahead and plant your vineyards and go ahead and marry your sons and daughters off. Even though you're here as captives and the situation is not good and you've lost your national independence, go ahead and enjoy life. I'll get you back there soon. Pray for the peace of Babylon, because in the peace of Babylon, you're going to have peace. If Babylon's not at war, then those Jewish captives would not be inscript, conscripted into military service. So pray for her peace, that she's not at war, you won't be at war, you can plant vineyards, have marriages, and enjoy the good life even in Babylon. And if we call America Babylon, because in some respects it is, do you think that Nebuchadnezzar was depraved enough to worship a pyramid with an all-seeing eye over it? Where did that come from? What chapter of the Bible did that come from? Is that part of our godly heritage? Or are there some things about our government that are kind of pagan? There are some things about our government that are kind of pagan. We look like Sodom and Gomorrah defending same-sex marriages and legislating their protection. Verses 6 through 8. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. The man who isn't wise, to a wise man the misery is not great, because a wise man knows what to do. But men who don't have wisdom, because God is changing political winds and other circumstances all the time, it is very hard to know what the time and judgment should be for every purpose. You purpose to do something, but you don't know if it's the right time, because God changes times. You purpose to do something, but you don't know what your judgment ought to be and how to do it, because God keeps changing the circumstances. And the Lord upsets our apple cart many different ways at many different times, because He wants us to humble ourselves before Him and admit that we know nothing. And that, that we would fear before Him, and that we would call upon Him, and that without His blessing we can't accomplish anything of real value. This is from chapter 3. This has been stated several times already. 
You know, chapter 3, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace, there's a time for this, a time for love, a time for hate. That's because God is changing the time, all the times that you can't accomplish your purpose. And it causes men great grief. But it doesn't cause a wise man that kind of grief. Because he knows who's orchestrating it all. The God of heaven who loves him. Because he knows, according to chapter 9 and verse 1, the righteous and the wise man is in the hand of God. God is taking care of him all the way through these different storms that affect everyone else. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, your, your balance sheet may go up and down. So what? Do you still have the Lord? Do you still have Jesus Christ? Amen. Do you still have the Bible? Yes. Still have your wife? Amen. And who cares? Do you know how bad it is for a man who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't have any wisdom? Look at verse 7. For he knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? He doesn't know what's coming, and he don't know when it's coming. He is pitiful. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment. But a wise man from verse 5, his heart discerneth time and judgment. He understands what he ought to do. Everybody else throws up, throws up their hands. The sky is falling. They're like little children with a, with a little nursery story about Chicken Little. The sky is falling. But a wise man discerns God is changing things. The times and seasons of different kings and different empires and nations, God raises one up and God puts one down. God raises up employers and puts employers down. God does all that. God sends famine. God sends tsunamis and hurricanes. God does all these things. They're his secret things. A wise man understands those changing times and adapts to them in his wisdom. A foolish man, he has his purposes and he's just going to do them and they keep getting rained on over and over so that they don't work and he gets mad and he blames God and he, he, he's against religion and he can't stand Christians who are happy in the midst of anything, any kind of event. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment and only a wise man can figure out the time and judgment to know how to adapt. Therefore, the misery of ordinary men that don't have wisdom is great upon him. He is greatly grieved. For he knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? And then we have this verse. There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. When men, foolish and wicked men constantly have changing circumstances that keep them from accomplishing great things, they get angry about it. And they give themselves over to wickedness. And because God doesn't punish them immediately, as our brother Keith read from Psalm 50, they get established in their wickedness and they just continue in it. That's a, that's a couple verses later. But what the lesson that is in verses 6 through 8... The lesson here is, man proposes, but God disposes. Man tries to accomplish his purposes, but God doesn't let him most of the time. And a, a man without wisdom has so little concept of God changing times and seasons and our need to adapt to it, that he gets frustrated, he's grieved, he's angry, he gives himself over to wickedness and he blames God and he hates Christianity. For them claiming they have an answer to why things happen the way they do. But a, but a man without wisdom doesn't know where any of this stuff comes from. He doesn't know what's going to happen and he doesn't know when it's going to happen. And then Solomon gives us an illustration of how ignorant he is. And how powerless he is. 
he can't even retain his own spirit. Don't you think your own spirit is the most personal possession you have? What do you think is closer to you than your own spirit? But can you keep it in the day of death? Can you say to the Lord, I'm not going to give it up? If you can't do that, that's the closest thing to you. How do you think you're going to keep your bank account when he says give it up? That's what, that's what that verse is there for. This verse 8 is not because he's now going to preach about the resurrection from the dead like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. It's here as an illustration that the man who barks against God should recognize that he's so powerless he can't even retain his own spirit, let alone his assets. Your spirit is the most personal thing you've got, but you can't keep it. There is no man that hath power of the spirit. Therefore, listen to these words. Go to now, ye that say... Tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. It's James four thirteen through 15. I want to make sure I quote the middle verse. It's usually not germane to the point, but I want to get it for you. James four thirteen through 15. Let me start again. Think about this. In Ecclesiastes 8, 6 through 8. Every purpose that a man tries to accomplish, he better try to accomplish it with wisdom, understanding the sovereignty of God in time and judgment, or he will not accomplish his purposes. The man without wisdom is trying to accomplish things and is constantly frustrated and therefore grieved and therefore gives himself over to wickedness and anger because things keep changing on him. And Solomon said, these men do not know what's coming, and they don't know when it's coming. They are totally ignorant of how life operates and how they should adapt to it. And the rest of the chapter is going to tell us how to adapt to it. And then verse 8. He doesn't have power to retain his own spirit. He can't even stop death of his own body. He cannot even protect the thing that is closest to him. Okay, now listen. If you're at James 4, 13 through 15, you can watch. Otherwise, listen. Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas, ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Now, that business plan was only a one-year business plan. That's too short to get a loan from Eric. A one-year business plan is just not long enough. He wants to see what you're going to do beyond that. Like any good commercial loan officer. These people are only saying, today or tomorrow, so it's not way off in the future, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a city, we're going to stay there just one year, we're going to buy and sell, we're going to get gain, we've done our pricing analysis, we've done our market analysis, we believe we can do that, we've got the capital, we can endure a little bit of hardship at the beginning as we get our business running, blah, 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 in their business plan, it's only one year long. Whereas, the Lord answers to them, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Forget the year, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanish away, vanisheth away. And no man, I'm putting Ecclesiastes 8 in here, and no man has the power to retain the spirit in the day of death. For that ye ought to say, this is a wise man and this is how we approach life. 
For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. If the Lord will, we shall do this or that. No. If the Lord will, we shall live. And then be able to do this or that. That is Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 6 through 8. A man who doesn't understand that God is in such control of your business plan that you may not even make it to tomorrow to start it into action. Therefore, we humble ourselves before God and say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. He does not mind business plans. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that a wise man will have a business plan, but it is entirely submitted to the will of God. Because you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow because your life is a vapor. God is in total control of your life and He can speak the word and your soul will depart from your body and you cannot retain it, let alone your business plan. That is what Ecclesiastes 8, 6 through 8 is talking about. In the last part of verse 5, there were the men that have wisdom and they discern time and judgment. But men who don't have that wisdom... Their purposes are constantly frustrated because they don't know anything about the future. They don't submit to the future. They just bull ahead and the Lord slaps them down. And that gets us to verse 8. So what can we go home with? To be wise men and know the interpretation of a thing? Let's submit to our government. Honor them. Like the Bible says, honor the king in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's pay, let's pray, and let's obey them. Let's not tell jokes about them. Let's not disrespect them, disregard them. Let's honor them and let's pray for them and trust them. And then as every plan that we make, we better humble ourselves before the sovereignty of God because no man can figure out what is going to happen tomorrow. You may not think that a tsunami could reach Greenville, but the Lord is able to do anything He wants. We would ordinarily think that that's impossible, but there's been lots of people who ordinarily thought a lot of things. We don't even know if we'll be alive tomorrow. So what do we do with each day? We humble ourselves before God. We examine ourselves to see if there's any sin there. We confess and repent of any sins. We trust Him that whatever He does in the future, whether He gives us a fatal disease, whether He takes away a child, whether He overthrows this nation, whether it's a financial collapse and we lose our savings, whatever he does, he is right, and we're going to adapt to it and submit to it and humble ourselves under it, just like Job did. But until then, we're going to eat, drink, and be merry one day at a time, because life is too short to always be worrying about those things that you do not know, nor should you even explore them. So we're going to get to verse 15 where it tells us to eat, drink, and be merry because that's the reward for your labor one day at a time until you're taken out of this world. And that is a very wise way of living. If you are thinking only about the future and you're saving for that great, grandiose time you're going to have out there, how do you know you're going to get to it? So each day, life is too short to be unhappy. Life is too short to complain. Life is too short to save too much. Spend. Not everything, because the Bible tells us to save, but eat good things. It doesn't say live like Hollywood. It doesn't say to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous. It doesn't say to be lascivious. It just says eat, drink, and be happy. Enjoy your life. Be thankful for your job. Be thankful for your house. 
Be thankful for your 11 and a half year old Jeep. Be thankful for your 13 year old Explorer. Be thankful. Enjoy life. How's that for a hard religion? Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You submit to government, you can reach for the breast because I'll nurse you with kings and queens. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen.